0: Dave coming to you live from SoCal. Since uh, COVID took over the scene, this podcast is about one of the other P's of my professions. We recall in episode one that I was a police officer before I was a private eye, before I was a physician and interim producer. Today's podcast takes me back like this was yesterday, but for you, probably many of you weren't born when this happened. This is circa 1970s, late 1970s. I'm going to take you back to a city within the Los Angeles County area in the east part of the Los Angeles County area. And the title of this podcast is Shots Fired Officer Down, Part 1. I don't know what day of the week it was. It seemed like every other day I was working graveyard shifts. Our department had 10-day shifts. So graveyard was 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. Day shift was 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. and nights was 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. So between nights and graveyard which I came on at 10 we had double the amount of officers so for a four-hour period between 10 and 2 a.m. 2 a.m. is when night shift went home 10 P.M. is when uh, uh, graveyard officers came on and then there was a four hour overlap between 10 PM and 2 AM. Why am I telling you this? Because I can tell you we were at double capacity, which was um, very beneficial. I left my uh, 950 square foot house um, with one child between the ages of one and two and headed for the police department around 8:45 at night so I can make my 10 p.m. shift I either was ri- driving in my Rabbit Volkswagen or driving my motorcycle which was a Honda 500 four cylinder that was my means of transportation I was a uh, P2 which is a police officer too also, a training officer. I had at least five or six years on. And veteranos or veterans, what they say is if you don't have at least five years on the street, you're not worth your salt. I had more than five, I had a six or so at this time. Arrived at the station. Got out of my vehicle, my plain clothes, and my Walter PPK on my right hip, where it always stayed until I went to work. Went downstairs in the department, and there was a ritual of going to the locker room, which is downstairs with the range, the briefing room, the coffee lounge area, We prepared meals for the prisoners and staff could eat lunch or dinner or whatever there. And uh, the locker room started with a transformation between a civilian and a paid warrior. I'm not going to try to dramatize this, but I always told people that I felt like Every day, someone was opening up the top of my head and taking a Coke spoon the size of a Coke spoon snort and taking a little bit of my brain out. The emotional part of being a police officer is the hardest part. That's why you have officer suicides uh, very high compared to officer shootings. But that night was going to be a different night. The PM shift was still out on patrol. So we had little time to prepare. A lot of uh, swearing and getting ready to put on our protective armor, body armor, which is just at that time, it was quite heavy and bulky. So days, nights was, night shifts were easier, day shifts harder. And as we transformed, we were psychologically preparing ourselves. And no joke was off-limit. No person in your family was off-limits, including your wife, your sister, your mother, your grandmother. Um, no insult was off-limits. And it was almost a contest to see who could be... Uh, the grossest or get down to the lowest level of humanity. But it was all a defense mechanism psychologically, looking back. So they put on the uniform and buttoned up everything and got on our Sam Brown, which weighed a ton. The radios back then, uh, is amazing. I'm, I'm holding a cell phone right now, hoping I'm still recording, which I am and uh the radio's <laughs> this does everything that our whole department you know took floors to do, so I'm talking to you on this it could be a two way radio. The radios back then the batteries and the radio itself weighed over eight pounds, so you had a radio on your hip, which is huge, motorolas, and then you had a forty five uh government model nine eleven um then I had not two but four clips of forty five ammo in the front. I had two pairs of handcuffs in the back and my baton also on my Sam Brown belt it was quite heavy um, most guys had Wellington's boots that was kind of the thing to wear, and uh uniform pants were. Brown at that time, or maybe black. We went from brown to black. But I think it was black at that time, a deep blue black. And uh, it went on the outside of your Wellington boots. So then we ambled into, we had a suitcase, briefcase. that had more 45 rounds and your clipboard and your reporting and your paperwork and all that junk. um, Extra handcuffs. Ties, plastic ties. Um, and you had to carry in, you know, your ride right helmet and all this junk. So we went into the briefing room. The briefing room was right across from the locker room. A sergeant would come on an elevated platform about two feet. He would sit there and he would tell the officers in attendance at the briefing. Um, current information, stolen cars, uh, a type of burglar, what their MO or modus operandi was and how they performed it and gave us all the update. Um, after some back and forth and heckling the sergeant a little bit, and as far as we could go with, depending who it was, um, we all then re- retreated and left all our junk in, uh, the briefing room, and then we went to the coffee break room, which would have a, it had an oven and a stove and a microwave and refrigerators because whoever worked on the inside or the desk duty with the dispatch also had, we had cells back there and we could hold them for three days before they had to be, either before the judge um, or arraigned um, and moved to the county sheriff's department so the officers on desk duties job to feed these guys We had a drunk tank which just had benches on the side and two drains that we could kind of hose off everything uh in the very unpleasant drunk tank so i won't go into further detail and then we had um i believe uh a padded cell, which I think later was outlawed, um, but this was policing back in this era. We had a padded cell or two. We had three cells for juvies up front, and then we had six to eight cells in the back. So now we're in the uh, break room, kitchen room, bunch of tables and chairs, and we sit around, and have our coffee, and see who could insult the other person more. Obviously, the the lowest ranked, the rookies would get the most gas. Um, And constantly overhead, because this was downstairs, uh, was the constant chatter of the police radio. So after that many years listening to radio, you could sleep through the radio. And then if they called your unit or your code or your car number, you would just automatically pick it up. But you could sleep through most of the rest of it. So, much like airline pilots or anybody else that you're constantly listening to a radio, you're filtering it out subconsciously, but when you hear something uh that you need to react to, you you can react to it quite quite quickly. So, I was in my uh, late 20s and probably a couple of years before I left to go on my pursuit to medicine. But um I was as much a cop as any cop was, and I loved being a police officer. The most of the pressure was from inside the department, not the bad guys. But you you did see the better worse side of life, and you dealt with the worst people most of the time. There were some good people. But mostly we had to take care of some very un unpleasant people. So you got very calloused. You had to. These are all defense mechanisms. The jokes about your grandmother, and I'm going to keep this very PG-12 because I have grandchildren that listen and to Papa's uh, podcast. So I'm going to keep it quite um, PG-12. So whatever jokes could be done, um, particularly the, <laughs> the, the rookies, they were hilarious because they were so off, off the charts um, and how they would react to it. So um, like I said, nothing was off limits. So as we had our feet up on the table, drinking our coffee and just uh, throwing it around, we had, we had time because the, there's a four hour overlap between night shifts from 4 PM to 2 AM. So they're still out there. We're 10 o'clock. So they, those guys only not get off for another four hours. So, we could take a, a, little, a little extra time, not so much in, on day watch because you you're pretty much graveyard guys are going home at eight and you're coming on at eight in the morning. So there was a time if you were going to commit a crime, a pretty good time to do it. So. Um, we're sitting in the uh, kitchen room and all of a sudden overhead, we heard um, first, we heard the officer. Um, which you can't mistake, Um, very, um, I wouldn't say panicked, but very distressed call, Um, I've been shot, I've been shot, Joyce and Ferguson, Joyce and Ferguson. Then you'd hear our dispatcher, even before our dispatcher went, we were hearing it running down the hall, Um, Shots fire, officer down, Joyce and Ferguson, code three. So for all the units that were already out there, somehow, miraculously, uh, I was the first car on the scene. Um, Usually during briefing, they give you the car number. They give you your partner if you have a a swing partner for that four-hour overlap or if you're a solo car. Um, so you give your car and then you get your keys upstairs on, on the rack. Um, so every car is just to whoever, etc. So, and then normally the process is you go in and you check the shotgun and you check the trunk and you check the lights and all that stuff. And you take kind on, of take your time. So there's another time where you're, you're transforming until citizen and husband and daddy um to a 2-year-old or 1-year-old to um a street warrior or street fighter or the thin blue lion or whatever it is so as dramatic as it is i can tell you that a lot of it is the emotional trauma not the physical trauma but that night it was it was both one of the swing officers and we're going to call him uh, miguel face um had been shot three times responding to a domestic dispute, which if you are a police officer or have relatives, they'll tell you that's one of the most dangerous calls um, because you don't know what you're getting into. So it was a domestic dispute or a 415 dispute. So he pulled up like he should have. He, um, uh, Ferguson runs uh, east-west, and uh at the end of ferguson on the east side is is a big bakery been there for a, a very long time it's huge brick at that time it was helms um it's, it's been bought out since but it's, it's still a bakery there and so it's a t intersection at um at the end of ferguson so i've been in pursuit down Ferguson where the bad guys didn't know that there was a brick wall in front of them and they would hit the wall at 70, 80 miles an hour and we'd have four fatalities and a stolen car. But onward. So instead of uh, getting the assigned car, we uh, we grabbed any key, it was panic. We didn't take our junk or that we had in the briefing room. We just sprinted upstairs um, you could hear sirens already, the adrenaline was pumping. We grabbed anybody could just jump in, pick somebody, just jump in a car. So I jumped in with Danny. We're going to call him Danny Howard, but Danny or Dan was his first name. And uh, we hauled behind all the way over the red lights and siren. Uh, Joyce and Ferguson wasn't that far from the from the PD. So um, we were able to get there fairly quickly. We found um, the officer shot um, laying outside his car uh, with a microphone in the street. And he had pulled up on uh, the east-west street of Ferguson, blacked out, and parked his car at least uh, five or six houses away from the call. Uh, When you black out, you you shut off all your headlights, and you have a kill button for your brake lights. So nothing, no lights go on. So you can roll up there and kill the engine um, well before you need to and just coast up to where you you need to be. So he was on the corner waiting for his backup because they were solo cars at that time um, on swing shift. And his backup hadn't gotten there. And out of the bushes uh, waiting for him was... um, the suspect, who before the officer, um, Miguel Faith had a chance to react, and wearing body armor, uh, was shot three times. And miraculously, um, on the worst possible scenario side of things, um, he didn't have any side panels. So he was shot three times and never hit the vest. So the best you had a front and a back, later they had side panels and then they have ones that kind of wrap around, but then you had a front and a back. And so your whole flank on the side under your arm was, so you got shot three times and uh, with a nine millimeter. Now, normally that's a, be a fatal, one shot would be fatal, two, you said three times. None of them hit the vest. It was outside. Um, paramedics couldn't get in because it wasn't a clear scene. We still had an active shooter. So Dan and I arrived on the scene, and um, units started to arrive behind us, blacked out, and started to form a um, perimeter. So we had a lot of chatter on the radio, a lot of... Um, And there was a railroad tracks behind because if you can visualize on East West Street and North South Street, North South Street was um, to his right. It was the cul-de-sac and behind the cul-de-sac was a train tracks. So we had officers on the train track, we had officers surrounding the perimeter. First, you establish a perimeter. Um, The officer in question was still lying. We responded to the east uh, side of Ferguson, uh, Dan and I, and we were literally on our stomach on the sidewalk. There was hardly any cover. We didn't know where the shooter was, what house it was, but we maintained that perimeter. So we had officers were responding to the, the injured officer, paramedics were not coming in, they dragged uh, the officer uh, back physically to an area where paramedics could get him in and get him to the hospital. I said, this is part one. I don't mean to leave you hanging, but I don't want this to go any more than 25 minutes. Uh, it, It takes me back emotionally. And um, I'm not trying to drag this out, but we were on the east side maintaining our perimeter. We didn't know where the shooter was, but we had information that the house was actually on the east side and we were, in the end, we were right. This was before the Los Angeles County SWAT team was called. We were a smaller department. We didn't have a SWAT team at that time. Um, some of the older officers who had been in shootings and active shootings and uh, Officer Kuna was an officer that was actually killed in a uh, robbery at 10 p.m., uh, similar timing. So uh, Dan and I were literally on our stomachs. We didn't know, and he said he wanted to take out the streetlight for a cover with a shotgun. He, he had a shotgun. We both had our 45s. Um, and we all both always carry backup. Mine was a a PPK Walter PPK, um, 380. So I had that. I had a 45, he had a shotgun and and his backup, whatever he carried, I don't know, and uh, his 45. So as he raised the gun, and I said, Dan, Dan was a little uh, on the wild side, um, he was. He was a, a little bit of a womanizer and uh, he was a big guy, big guy and big, big, <laughs> great guy. Great. I loved the way he put his gloves on, particularly when he was talking to suspects, when he had a sap in his palm of his other hand and the suspect didn't know that. So we're on the honor and he decided to take out the street light. And I said, I don't think it's a good idea, you know, but we're, At a very height, everyone's on a height of like alert. The radio is like chattering and everyone's setting up positions and watch commander's calling out. Of course, he's at the station, but he's got the map and he's got everything covered. He's got SO um, in route. Um, So Dan, uh, instead of takes out the streetlight. He you always keep your fingers straight. Um, I teach anybody in firearms, you always keep your finger straight. You don't put it in the trigger guard or on the trigger. But as he drew the gun back, not to fire, he fired, and and the round went into the window of the house to our left, and um, broke the window. So hopefully, he didn't you know, County? That happened to be just serendipitously the house where the suspect was. So he probably thought we knew more than we did, but it was actually a misfire. And um, so once he shot, everybody, you know, just started going crazy on the radio. Shots fired, shots fired, shots fired. So it took us a little while to um, for us to go. No, that was uh, Dazzling Dan. That was his name. Um, Dazzling Dan uh, shot off around. round. Uh, no one injured. You know, maintain your position, maintain your position. So we didn't know where he was. We had the perimeter surrounded, and I'm going to um, stop it at 25 minutes. This is uh, part one of podcast number 14, entitled Shots Fired Officer Down, part one. God bless, and I'll see you for part two shortly.